Well, this morning, um, Pastor Matt's going to come and share. If you don't know, Matt is our youth pastor here and has been here for a little over a, a month, I think, or give or take a little bit here. About a month and a half. See, I, I don't remember anything. Um, but Matt's going to share this morning, and so I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say for us, and so hopefully God will use him today. Once again, my name is Matthew. I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's my job. I get to work with teens from 7th through 12th grade. We meet every Sunday night from 6 to 8 p.m., and it's just, honestly, it is a ton of fun just to have conversations and see students in their eye. It clicks for the first time who Jesus is. And so I want to chat with you. Have you ever had an expectation that wasn't met? For example, think about the last movie you went to see. Okay, I want you to picture the last movie you went to see in a theater, not streamed, but in a theater. Because if you don't know this, expectations are all around us. I don't know a lot of people who go to movies without some idea of what it's going to be about. Right? We see commercials, we see trailers, maybe we read about it from a critic online, but we go to a movie understanding to some degree what the movie will be about thematically, tonally, uh, narratively. And the truth of the matter is, sometimes we go to movies and it is nothing like what we expected. I've had a few scenarios like that. One time I took my mom to uh, Logan, which is an X-Men movie, and I'm like, she loves Hugh Jackman. And then it starts, and she left within five minutes. She's like, I can't do it, right? We all have expectations from time to time that aren't met. And we craft expectations about people, restaurants, heck, even faith, right? We have these expectations in our mind. And sometimes in these beautifully rare circumstances, our expectations aren't only met, they're exceeded. Or sometimes our expectations are completely flipped upside down. So today, it is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday commemorates Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's one of his last earthly moments of praise where people were still singing his praises, because five days later would lead to the cross. And so this is a big moment for Jesus that comes in a somewhat innocuous, what seems like insignificant moment. We read in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21, if you'll read along with me. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, uh, says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them. For Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. This is an a weird moment, because you can read this passage and get nothing from it and easily move on, right? A lot of us do every single year, but this is a really big moment in the life of Jesus. You see, Jesus wasn't just entering Jerusalem on any old day. He was entering near the time of the Passover feast. If you don't know, the Passover feast was an annual celebration that the Jewish people celebrated to remind themselves that they were freed from the oppressive rule and reign of Egypt back in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And so every year they would celebrate the Passover feast to remind themselves God was faithful, but also to hold that hope that God would be faithful. 
because they weren't just freed from Egypt. That wasn't the only oppressive party that was over them at one point. There was also Assyria and Babylon. And now in the life of Jesus, it's the rule of Rome. Rome was the new bad guy in the playground. And so the Jewish people are obviously uh, tense at this time of year because they're holding out hope that God will do something. And then it even says in the passage that Jesus rides on the back of a donkey, which is to show people, anyone who was there in that moment, or anyone who's reading this in the gospel account would have recognized that from the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, which refers to Zechariah 9, where the prophet's talking about this future king who will free them from oppression. And so the people are sitting there and they're like, that's the guy, right? Everything points to the fact that this guy who's riding into town on a donkey, he's the king who will set us free. And so they're excited and that's why they're shouting Hosanna. Hosanna is a praise. It's something we say to praise someone, but it's also what it means to save us. So when they're shouting out Hosanna, what they're saying is save us from the oppression and abuse that we're experiencing. And then there's this really weird moment. The disciples and the people in the crowd start laying down their cloaks. I don't know about you. No one's ever laid down their cloak for me. Never, not once. Because in this day and age, people weren't that wealthy. And so people, unless you were filthy rich, had one cloak. And so to lay down your cloak in the the dirty muck and mire of the ground was to mess up the clothes you have, the only clothes that you have. I have friends who clean their shoes with a toothbrush. They're not laying their cloak anywhere. You do that for the king. And so these people are fully respecting that Jesus is the king they've been waiting for. And then you see this really interesting moment because a character in the story, someone in the crowd asked the question I think all of us probably have asked at some point or another. Who is this guy? Who is this man who's riding into town acting like our king? That's an important question because it gets to the very core of what the gospel is, is talking about all the time. Who is Jesus and why should we care? Because how you answer that question will shape all of your life. Who is this man? You see, identity is really important. Sometimes we uh, misconceive and construe that our identity is what we do for work. If you've ever seen adult people, especially adult men, interact, the first question when they first meet is, what do you do? Right? Because that's all I need to know right now. What do you do? The truth is, sometimes we identify ourselves by these external things, like how much money we have in the bank account, our job, the toys that we have in our, in our house, our wife, so on and so forth, right? We identify by those things, but that's not our identity. When I say I know someone, I'm not saying I know how much money they have or I know what their job is. I say I know that person at a deeper, more core level. The dictionary defines identity as something or someone, like the, the root and core of that thing or person. And so when this guy asks this question, who is this man? He's asking an identity question about God. Why should we care? Because the reality is what we think about God shapes our entire lives. There's a theologian, A.W. Tozer, famous theologian out of Chicago, who once said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us because it directs our lives. For example, if you think about God as just an older gentleman in heaven in a flowing white robe with cherubim playing the harp, Right? A lot of us have that image in the back of our mind, mostly caused by film and TV. Maybe you think about God and you think of him as someone vengeful or wrathful or just angry, waiting for you to step out of line so he can strike you down with lightning. Or you think of God in some way like a heavenly fun uncle who just wants to give you all the things you want. 
Or if you're from my generation, most people my age think of God as nothing more than just moral ideology. It's just good advice on how to live your life. And the truth is, no matter how you view God will shape the rest of your life. Because if you think of God as angry and vengeful, you live not out of love and grace and mercy, you live out of fear. If you think of God as nothing more than just a genie in a bottle who wants to give you everything that you want, no matter if it's good for you or not, you make God into a heavenly Santa Claus. And if you think of God as nothing more than moral ideology, what you end up with is an algorithm that if you just do the right stuff, then the right life will happen, right? What we think about God matters. And so for us today, the question we have is, who is this man? Because how we answer that question will shape the rest of our lives. So today I want to offer you three different answers to that question. The first of which is that Jesus is our true source of hope. You see in the Bible from the beginning parts of Genesis to the conclusion of Revelation, the whole Bible is pointing to this one central idea. The whole Bible is pointing to Jesus. There's one narrative arc that streams through the whole Bible, and it points to Jesus. And one of the things that we learn is that our hope comes from Jesus alone. You can hope in a lot of things, but the problem when you hope in a lot of things that aren't eternal, when you hope in temporal things, those things can be taken from you. Those things can fail you. And so the reason we have our hope in Jesus alone is because Jesus is an Emmanuel God. It says in the Nativity story, an angel appears to Joseph and is telling him about this son that they're going to have. And he says this, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah in Matthew 123, he says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, you can easily breeze past this, but the reason why it's important is the Jewish people at this day and age had no idea that God was in their midst. This is the first time that the Jewish people had been told that God was willing to come find them. They didn't have to go find him. Because up until this point, the people truly believed that God was bound by the temple. You had to go to the temple to worship God. You had to go into the Holy of Holies. That was, like we sometimes call church the house of the Lord. They really believed it. And for the first time ever, this angel is telling Joseph the good news of great joy that we learn about at Christmas is that God is Emmanuel. So no matter when you feel alone, no matter what you go through, God is there with you. The second story and the second reason why we have hope in Jesus comes a little later in his life. It's also in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is... a just been crucified and his disciples are worried because for a long time people had been calling themselves the messiah the savior the the thing that people were waiting for and the problem was those people would die and that was it lights out and so the disciples are holding their breath wondering have we been following this guy for three years thinking he was the messiah and have we been wrong And so on the third day, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. By the way, if you didn't know Jesus dies, spoiler, but it's been 2,000 years, so. Jesus is not in the tomb. Mary Magdalene goes and she approaches an angel and the angel says to her this line, says, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. The beauty of this passage is the disciples and Mary Magdalene are told, Jesus has risen just as he said. Which means 
to the early church and to us today that Jesus doesn't make promises he intends to break. That Jesus is a man of his word, which means to us that we can trust that he has been faithful and will be faithful again. On those two stories, the gospel narrative hinges that God is Emmanuel and that God has won. Sometimes we have this expectation in our life that once you become a Christian, man, life's just going to be so much easier. If you've been a Christian for more than 10 seconds, not true. Not even a little bit. Jesus never said it would be easy, though. He said it would be worthwhile. He said we wouldn't regret it. He never said it would be easy, though. And so what we learn from this is that we can trust Jesus is who he said he is. There's a passage, actually, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, That's what our hope is in. Our hope is in a God who overcame. Second thing, when we ask who is this man, second one is that Jesus is a different kind of king. If you're like me, you read the triumphal entry and you're like, how can these people go from praising God in one moment to five days later shouting crucify him? It seems like a leap, right? Zero to 100, very fast. But it becomes a little bit more understandable when you understand what they expected. They didn't expect a king who rode in a donkey. They wanted a king who rode in on a chariot or rode in on a stallion. They wanted an army general, someone to relieve the oppression. That's why they're shouting Hosanna. They really, it's not a figure of speech. They need someone to save them. They want a military king. And what they get is a king not bent on conquering but on reconciling. And there's a massive difference between those two. Jesus was not concerned about entrenching ourselves in the earthly kingdoms, wasn't concerned with our popularity or success or our money. What Jesus was concerned about was love, was salvation, was redemption. Napoleon Bonaparte, if you don't know, uh, was a very great French leader. And he said this when reflecting about Jesus. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there's no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of people would die for him. Now, sometimes we have this misconception that love means uh, the way you love your children or the way that you love your friends, your family, your spouse, so on and so forth. And there is that type of love, that more affectionate, sentimental love. But Jesus wasn't telling us always to love with that sentimentality because there's times where you interact with difficult people, annoying people, or just downright bad people, right? When Jesus says to love our enemy, what he's talking about is this agape love, which is a type of love that when it sees an enemy, it now sees a neighbor. When it sees someone who's different, it... It seeks out and reaches out and shows compassion. It, that's the type of love that Jesus founded this empire on. He wasn't concerned with building up the kingdom of the world, but ushering in the kingdom of heaven. There's a story of Jesus in Luke 4, where he goes to the temple, and he's reading the scroll for the day, reading the daily lesson. And he reads from Isaiah 61, and this is what he says about the passage. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he goes and he sits down 
And he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. Jesus is laying out what the role of the king was. And the role of the king was to love, to show good news, to help, to show compassion, to, be, to help the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. And so not only is he laying out the role of the king, he's saying, I'm the king. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And people were not happy. Because what they wanted was a God or a king who was far less concerned with their salvation and far more concerned with their success. Far less concerned with the person that they were becoming and the more concerned about the power that they could accumulate. And Jesus said, I'm concerned with you and who you're becoming. I'm concerned with how we are helping. I'm concerned with how we are loving because that's what the kingdom of God is all about. So when we ask, who is this man? He is different than the kings that we know. He's different than the presidents we know. He's different than the leaders that we know. But have you ever noticed sometimes different is good? Because it doesn't seem like normal's always working. Jesus was a different kind of king, and that did not meet the expectations of the day. Third way, when we ask this question, who is this man, is that Jesus is the way. I was having coffee with a student recently. Well, recently as in a couple years, so I guess in the cosmic scope of things recently. I was having coffee with someone, and uh, the student looked at me. We were talking about life and religion and all that, and finally just blurts out, faith is so complicated. And I nodded, and then I thought, is it? I mean, we've overcomplicated it for sure, but is faith really that complicated? And don't get me wrong, I've lived a sizable amount of life compared to some, I guess. I've lived some life now, and I've also found myself thinking faith is really complicated. But then I realized, what if it's not? What if faith is really just about Jesus? There's a pastor and writer, A.J. Sherrill. He used to actually pastor Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids. And he said this in one of his books. He said, theology, which, let me pause there for a second. Sometimes that word is a little loaded for us. Theology in simple layman's terms, just mean the, means the study of God. So whenever you hear someone say theology, you don't have to think of some like old dead guy. You can just think about, it's a study of who is God? How do we relate to God? So it says this, theology helps us to form categories for the relationship. But theology is not the relationship. The point being, theology helps us to know about God, but it isn't God. Right? It's no substitute for God. It's just how we know about God. And the reality of why that's so important to me is because I spent a very long time, a lot of my life was spent thinking that if I just accumulated enough wisdom, enough knowledge, enough doctrine, then I would be good. Right? I'm doing faith really well because I know the right answers. But the truth was I never let the right answers impact my life. We can know a lot about God without ever knowing God. Uh, there's actually a passage where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And his disciples, he says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And what he's referring to is the kingdom of God. And one of his disciples, my favorite disciple, Thomas, pipes up and he says, how are we ever going to know how to get there if you don't show us the way? And Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus is the way. Faith in its simplest format is Jesus. 
And all of the other stuff, church attendance, that's important. Going to church is great. It's one of the ways that we learn about God. Small groups are important. Tithing is important, right? Reading our Bibles, prayer, those are all good things. But so often we let good things become a God thing. And we try to substitute. We try to replace. And we try to make that the point. And the point was never about all of the facts we learned. Truthfully, I learned a lot of facts and it just made me good at trivia. That's it. You can know all the right answers, but the right answers aren't going to save you in the end. If you notice all the time when Jesus is bringing along new followers, he doesn't say, follow, he doesn't say sit and learn. He says, come and see, follow me. Right? It's an experiential thing. Now, you have to know the right answers. This isn't saying don't read your Bible. This isn't saying don't pray. This is saying if you don't have Jesus at the center, this doesn't matter. I know a lot of people who read their Bible all the time, but they don't have this right. At that point, you're in a book club. That's it. We have to get this right. We have to know that Jesus is the point. He is the way. So when we ask who is this man, he's the way. He's the point of faith. Think of it this way. Good analogy. Knowledge is like knowing a seatbelt will save your life in a bad accident, but never wearing it. How much does that knowledge help you? Right? You can know the right stuff and never live the right way. Right? So, who is this man? Who is Jesus to you? Because how you answer that question will lead you to an end of some sort. They will either, like let's say you think Jesus is, um, you think Jesus is just about happiness. It'll lead you to the wrong destination. Sometimes how you answer this question will lead you to greater fear. Because you think God is this angry, vengeful, wrathful God. Or how you answer this question could lead you to realize that we serve an Emmanuel God, a God who is here with us. Maybe how you answer this question will lead you to be disappointed because Jesus wasn't what you expected. You expected something wildly different than you got. And what we realize is that Jesus is so much more. Sometimes when we ask this question, we wind up in a place where we are disappointed because we've tended to overcomplicate things. Maybe that answer will lead you to realize that faith is really quite simple. It's about knowing that God is who he said he is. It's knowing that Jesus is faithful and has been and will be again. So on this Palm Sunday, I challenge you to ask this question for yourself. I want you to think about who God is to you. Because how you answer this question will lead you and guide you and shape your entire perception of reality. It'll shape your relationship with each other. And it'll shape your relationship to creation. And so today, I wonder, when we ask that question, who is this man, how would you answer it? Because that answer is going to shape you, and I hope that it shapes you to be like Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to be in this place today. God, I pray that we begin to understand more about who you are. 
that when we get asked this question, who is this man? Because we all ask that question from time to time. That we can be able to answer it faithfully and honestly and come to a better conclusion of who you are. I pray that we recognize that you are our source of hope. I pray that we recognize that you are so different than what we expected. But God, you are so much greater than what we could have ever dreamed. And I pray that you help us to recognize that you are the only way. We can't get there on our intellect. We can't get there on our knowledge. We can't get there on our our good deeds. The only way to the kingdom is through you, and that's the only way that we know the Father. God, I pray that today and the rest of this week and the rest of this holy week, God, I pray that we become more and more like you every day, that we choose love over hate, and that we choose community and connection over division and hate. May we be ambassadors of you and of this new creation of this agape love today. Amen.